Father in heaven, we enter into your presence tonight on the day that you have blessed and sanctified. And Father, we do it for one reason, because we want to know you better. So we invite you to be with us here tonight and that you would take the message of your word and through the powerful medium of your Holy Spirit that you would send it home to our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. In John, the 13th chapter, we find Jesus and the disciples in the upper room celebrating what would be the last Passover that would have any significance to it. While they were up there in the upper room, as you may or may not know, the disciples were there bickering amongst themselves who would be the greatest, even in those final few hours with Jesus, that was still a bone of contention. Uh, Judas had already betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and he was there uh, with the rest of the disciples crowding in around Jesus. Just hours from this time, Jesus would be in the Garden of Gethsemane, pouring out his heart to his father, asking that the cup would pass away from him, but nevertheless, not his will, but the father's will to be done. A few short hours after his time in the garden, Jesus would be found standing before Pilate in one of the many mock trials that would take place before his ultimate crucifixion on the cross and then his ascension into the kingdom of heaven. And as they're there in the upper room in this final time together, there is much that is probably running through the mind of Jesus that he wants to share with his disciples in these last few moments together with him. And as you read John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, you can peer into that conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples before he is hung on a cross and then ascends to his Father in the kingdom of heaven. And as they're there in the upper room, there is a little piece of advice that I want to pull out. And this is going to kind of set us on a course in our time together studying. So turn with me, if you would, John chapter 13. We're going to look at verse 34. John 13, verse 34. Jesus, as he is talking to his disciples there, he gives them a piece of advice. He says this, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Oftentimes this is referred to as the 11th commandment. We understand that it has its foundation in the Old Testament to love one another as God hath loved us. In fact, 19 times in the New Testament alone by Jesus, by Paul, and by John, this theme, this concept is repeated throughout the Bible that we ought to love one another. But I'm afraid that it's an unfortunate thing that in our world today, this type of love that Jesus is 
encouraging his disciples to have towards one another is sadly lacking in our world today. Oftentimes, I think rather than loving one another as Jesus says we ought to, we rather put up with one another or we endure one another for the short time that we have together. And I dare say that this has even crept its way into God's remnant church. Now, the real bombshell comes in the next verse. In verse 35, Jesus says this, by this, by what? By loving one another as Jesus has loved us. Now, before I read this passage, let me just explain something here. You will know, the, 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 the astute student will know that in other places of the Bible, Jesus says to love one another as we want to be loved, right? But here he is saying not only to love one another as we want to be loved, but he's saying to love one another as he has loved us. There's all the difference in the world there. And then in the next verse, Jesus says this in verse 35, he says, by this, by us loving one another as he has loved us, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. The greatest evidence that we can give the world that we are disciples of Christ is if we love one another as Jesus has loved us. You see, back in the Bible times, disciples of different religious leaders, they had their way of distinguishing who they belonged to in terms of discipleship. Sometimes they, they were distinguished by their dress, sometimes their habits, their customs, their rights, their, their different teachings that they had. But for the follower of Jesus, what would set him apart to the rest of the world that he was a disciple of Jesus is that he would love other people unconditionally the way Jesus loved us. The proof that we were disciples of Christ or we are disciples of Christ does not come according to Jesus by our theological arguments or the doctrines that we profess, important as those things may be. But according to Jesus, the evidence comes from our love one towards another. I want to flesh this out a little bit in our time together over the next couple of presentations. If, you have, if you're taking notes, jot down this reference, the Southern Review, January 1 of 1901. As I was studying this concept of loving one another as Jesus has loved us, I stumbled across this reference, and it's really not repeated that many times in the spirit of prophecy, and it's a mind-blowing statement. Southern Review, January 1 of 1901, it says this, He only who loves his fellow man to a purpose can know God. Who are the ones that know God? who love their fellow men. Now, this is a biblical concept. In the, gospel, or in the book of 1 John, the Bible says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So it's a biblical concept that she's talking about here. So if we want to know God, she says we have to have love one towards another. Now, she goes on and she says this. This is the reason that there is so little genuine vitality in our churches. Why is there little genuine vitality in our churches? Because there is little Love in our church. Now, the word vitality, strength, energy, having life. 
The reason why there is little vitality, the reason why there is little life, little energy, little uh, uh, strength, if you will, is because there is an absence of the love that Jesus had towards us in the church manifested towards one another. Now she goes on. That's not where she stops. She goes on. She says this. Theology is valueless unless it is saturated with the love of Christ. We can stop there and go home. Theology is valueless unless it is saturated with the love of Christ. What do you think of when you think of the word saturation? You know, oftentimes, if you are a husband or if you are a husband-to-be, a good thing to do is to get into the practice of washing the dishes. And oftentimes, I will wash the dishes at home, and there's this sponge that sits on our countertop, on our sink counter, and in between the episodes of washing dishes, that sponge dries up until it kind of curls up on the edges. It's so bone dry. But when you put that thing under the water, it soaks up all the water and it becomes what? Saturated. It simply means it cannot hold anymore. Theology is valueless unless it is saturated with the love of Christ. I'm not telling you, this isn't coming from me. This is, the, this is from the servant of the Lord. We believe in the spirit of prophecy, amen? amen? Valueless, unless it is saturated with the love of Christ. She goes on, she says this, God is supreme. His love in the human heart will lead to the doing of works that will bear fruit after the solemnitude of the character of God. And then she goes on and says this, in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul defines Christ-like love. In the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul defines what gives value to our theology. He defines what brings life and vigor and vitality and energy into our churches. He defines Christ-like love. And then she goes on and she makes this interesting little point. She says this, it would be well to print this chapter in small type on, in every paper issued in our presses. You think she put value in 1 Corinthians 13? You know, the other thing she said is that we should read that chapter every single day. You think there would be a little bit more vitality in our churches if we did that? You think there would be a little bit more value to our theology if we did that? And then she says this, she quotes 1 Corinthians 13. And then she says this, this chapter is an expression of the obedience of all who love God and keep his commandments. Listen to this. It is, uh, it is brought into action in the life of every true believer. It is brought into action in the life of every true believer. Now, before we get too deep into 1 Corinthians 13, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, oftentimes the preamble, if you will, or the preface to 1 Corinthians 13 is left out in its reading. As you know, the Bible is not written with chapter divisions. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, I want you to notice what Paul says right before he introduces this concept of love, his definition of Christ-like love. 1 Corinthians 
12, verse 31. It says this. It says, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. This is the only place in Scripture where we are told to covet something. Did you know that? Now, of course, there's two types of coveting, obviously, here in the Bible. There's the one that the Bible forbids in the Tenth Commandment, and then there's the one that Paul encourages us to have. He tells us to covet earnestly the best gifts. The coveting that the Bible tells us not to have in the Tenth Commandment uh, is a desire to possess the visible materials, the tangible things of this life that are owned by other people. It is motivated by a sense of selfish desire for something that somebody else possesses. This is not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is telling us to covet earnestly not things, but the gifts of the Spirit, which he's already outlined. If you go up a couple of verses, in verse 28, he says this, but God hath set some of the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps government, diversity of tongues. Eight gifts that Paul outlines there, and he tells us to covet them earnestly. There's nothing wrong with coveting these gifts because as we covet them, we are not taking anything away from anybody. Now, I'm coming to 1 Corinthians 13. Just follow me down this rabbit trail, if you will. As we covet these gifts, we are not taking anything away from anyone, but in fact, we are actually adding to the church when we covet earnestly the first gifts, or these gifts, rather. Now, the word covet is where we, the, the, the Greek word for covet is where we get the word zealous from. When was the last time you coveted a spiritual gift? You know, oftentimes when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, we oftentimes pray that the nominating committee will nominate somebody else for that thing. When was the last time you got down on your knees and you prayed and you, you said, Lord, I'm coveting, I am earnestly, I am zealously desiring one of these gifts and specifically mentioning one. Paul says to covet, not just covet, but he says to covet earnestly the best gifts. And I think we should do, we would do well if we went home and we spent a little time with the Lord in our prayer closets and had it out with the Lord and said, Father, I want one of these gifts, not for my own personal edification, not for uh, my, the enlargement of my influence, but for the expansion of the cause of God and to carry it forward in a way that will hasten the coming of Jesus Christ. Covet earnestly, he says, the best gifts. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul always has... Another surprise for us. He says, but then he says, yet I show unto you a what? A what? A more excellent way. Do you see how Paul, what Paul is doing here? He's comparing. In chapter 12, he spends this time outlining the spiritual gifts. And then he concludes chapter 12 by telling us to zealously covet these gifts. But then he says, now... I'm going to show you something that is beyond comparison. In fact, if you read this in the New English translation, he says this, but be e you should be eager for the greater gifts. And then he says, now I will show you a way that is beyond comparison. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And he goes through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So what Paul is doing here is he's comparing between the gifts of the Spirit and the love that should be manifested in the lives 
of God's people. And he, sh- he tells us that this love is beyond what he says, comparison. Now, there's a confusion, I believe, in our world today about the word love. If I stood before you this, this evening and said, I love my wife, I love my dog, I love apple pie, you automatically know they're all different kinds of loves, right? If I just say the word love, you don't know what that love is unless it is in the context of a sentence. In the Greek, that wasn't the way. We know here that the love that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 is what we know to be the word agape. And that is also the word that Jesus used when he said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you agape one another. The way we show the world that we are followers of Christ is not the theology that we carry around inside of our head or the things that we spew out of our mouth, but it's the agape that has taken root in our hearts that changes us so thoroughly and transforms us so thoroughly that we become like Jesus. I want to tell you something this evening. As a minister of the gospel, this is what the world is starving to see. There is enough theology to go around. Now listen, don't misunderstand me. I was an evangelist for many years. I believe in the importance of the gospel. I believe in the importance of doctrine. I believe in the importance of evangelism. But what I've also come to find out is that in order for our evangelism to be successful, in order for our theology to be attractive, it must first be saturated with agape. And when that happens, I believe it is so alluring that even the spirit of prophecy tells us it is like a magnet and it's difficult for people to resist that type of Christ-like love being manifested among God's people. Agape is not just a little extra patience with people putting up with them or shutting our mouth when somebody gets us a little upset. It's a transformation of our hearts to be more like Jesus. You see, it's unfortunate today, agape is something that we rarely see uh, manifested in the human life. We don't oftentimes see somebody show selfless love, unconditional love. But yet Jesus tells us this is going to be a key characteristic of his people. When you look at God, the Bible tells us God is love. He loves us not because of what he gets from us, but he loves us merely because he cannot do anything else. That should give you some pause for some thought. No matter what situation God is placed in, yes, there will be a consequence for sin. We understand that. But even in our sin, God still loves us. No matter what we do, no matter what we say, no matter what happens, God still has a love for his children. And this is the type of love that the world is looking for among God's people. They're starving to see it. They hear us profess it, they hear us talk about it, they hear us theorize about it, but now they're looking to see if what we profess has truly changed who we are. That we love simply because as God's children, we cannot do anything else. That is all we can do because we've been so thoroughly transformed into the character of God, we cannot do anything else. Agape is not an emotional response. Agape is a principle. And in fact, agape is the only love that God commands us to give. 
He doesn't command us to eros anybody. He doesn't command us to phileo anyone. He doesn't command us to storge people, but he does command us to agape. He says to love your enemies. He commands us. It's a command that God has given to us. You see, it's interesting. When you look at most forms of human love, in order for most forms of human love to exist, it must be reciprocated. In other words, as you give it, it is given back. And as you give and take, that love begins to grow and it exists and it, and, and, and it becomes deeper and, and more intense. But when it comes to agape, agape is not dependent upon the other person's response for it to exist. That's why I can love my enemy even though my enemy does not love me back. Are you all following me here this evening? See, agape is a type of love that does not need to be reciprocated. It doesn't need to be something that is shown to me in order for me to give it back. I can give it simply because that's who I am as a child of God. And I cannot do otherwise. <clears throat> so let's look at this a little bit more here this evening together. Go with me in your Bibles. You're still there. First Corinthians. Now we're looking at the 13th chapter. Now for those of you that are taking notes, you will notice... Uh, by the time we finish together, that the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians is actually separated into three different sections. You can write this down if you so choose to. In verses 1 through 3, Paul talks about the supremacy of love. He makes five contrasting statements, and we'll look at two of them in our time together tonight. In verses 4 through 7, Paul talks about the characteristics of love, or he analyzes it. He takes it and he puts it under a microscope, and he breaks down agape into the fabric of what it's made out of. We'll look at that tomorrow morning. In the third uh, part of 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13, Paul talks about the permanence of agape, that it will go on and it will abide forever. We'll talk about that a little bit more in our time together tomorrow evening. So the supremacy of love, the characteristics of love, and the permanence of love is the structure, the three sections that you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But let's start by looking at two of these things. I'm going to read the first three verses here. Follow along with me in your Bibles if you would. Paul says this, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and the word though means even if, even if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity. I am become as sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, what does he say? Prophets mean nothing. Now I want you to look at that. The gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, having all faith. Now it's interesting. The Bible just says, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, move, and it be moved. Paul kicks it up a notch and he says, even if I had all faith. Even if I had all faith that there was to be able to, to possess, if I had it without agape, it was nothing. Acts of charity is the fourth thing you see there. And then the fifth thing, the ultimate expression of love that Jesus manifested on the cross, that of martyrdom, he says, without love, without agape, is nothing. I want you to look at those five things. Tongues, prophecy, faith, acts of charity, and martyrdom. If you met somebody that had those five things, would you think that they were a pretty good Christian? You probably would. 
I mean, if you look at that description there, Paul is basically describing a very good Seventh-day Adventist Christian. But what he is saying is, even if you had this and it looked good on the outside and to the eyes of everybody else, it looked like you were a good, upstanding Seventh-day Adventist. In fact, you were ushered into different positions within the church. If you had it, if you manifested it, and it did not come from the motivation of agape, in the eyes of God, he says it's nothing. In the eyes of God, he says it's of no value in a sense. So Paul is really telling us the importance here of, of, of all that we do, all that we say, having its root coming from that selfless love that Jesus has manifested towards you and me. Tonight, we don't have time to go through these five contrasting statements that Paul makes. We will just look at two of them in our time together here this evening. I'm going to look at the first one here. Paul says in verse 1, even if I should speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Doubtless, Paul mentions the gift of tongues first. In fact, it's interesting. If you look at verse 28 of chapter 12, where does he put the gift of tongues? Last on the list. If you go to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, you actually find that the Corinthian church was rather enamored with the gift of tongues. And Paul has to belabor the whole process of how the gift of tongues should be used in the church. Doubtless, Paul had the gift himself. And he starts with this gift. It is apparent that the Corinthian church perhaps prided themselves that among them they had the gift of tongues. Sounds similar to maybe some of the religious movements that we see in the world today. But Paul tells the Corinthian church, as good as the gift of tongues is in helping to advance the cause of God, as we see in Acts chapter 2, Paul says, if it exists without agape, it has no value in the eyes of God. I really hope you're getting the sense of where Paul, how Paul is trying to describe the, 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 perma, the, the, the importance of love existing among God's people and it being the motivation from which everything else comes from. Paul says that even if we had this gift, if it did not come from love, we are but as sounding brass or as a tinkling cymbal. Notice how it's uh, rendered in the English Standard Version. I like this translation. It says this, even if, uh, even, uh, if, I, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I like how it says it. It says, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. How many of you would go to a symphony of cymbals? Or an orchestra of gongs? But what Paul is telling us here tonight is that a church, a people, assembling themselves who have not the root motivation of agape in their hearts, in the eyes of the world, that's what they are. They're an orchestra of cymbals. They're clanging gongs, they're clanging cymbals and gongs. That's what, that's what he's saying. Now, I remember one time, uh, I lived in England for several years, and I remember one time I was uh, in one of the churches. I used to like to go to different, the different churches, the old churches in, in England. And, and I, was, uh, I was able to go up into the belfry where they have all these bells that you can hear for miles. And while we were up there, we were looking at, you know, the architecture and all that kind of stuff. And 
Uh, and for some reason, well, this group of people, it was a small group of people, while we were up in this belfry, somebody decided to start ringing these bells. And I have never in my life been in the presence of something that loud. And and it's going for miles. I mean, miles, people can hear it. And I'm standing right next to this, I'm watching it, this thing banging back and forth. And it is so loud, I can feel it vibrating my bones. And and, and and when when I heard it, I put my hands over my ears and it was still too loud. And my natural human compulsion was to get out of there as fast as I could. And Paul is telling us here this evening that those of us who are living the Christian life that is not motivated from agape, he says that to other people when we open our mouths, we are like clanging gongs and sounding cymbals. That in their eyes, in their life, in their experience, just like I wanted to get away from that, they also want to get away from it as well. Because what they are looking for is they are looking for a Christian who has the beautiful melody of Jesus' love in their hearts. That's what they're looking for. Clanging gongs, sounding cymbals. You know, it's sad. As I look at the news and things that people post on Facebook, I've been struck with this a couple of times. Sometimes the world does a better job at showing agape than God's people do. Story after story blasted out on the news networks of people going above and beyond, doing things that is not normal in the world today. They should be absolutely normal among God's people. It should just be another day in God's church when his people go above and beyond the normality of this world. It's what the world is looking for. When people see this manifestation of selfless love, they want to tell other people about it because it's so amazing. It just strikes a chord inside of them. They can't help but share that story and try to find out what is it that motivates people to do these incredible things. Now, I must say that I do not possess the gift of tongues. Maybe some of you here are blessed with that ability. But irrespective of whether you have the gift of tongues or not, I believe the point that Paul is getting to here is no matter what gift of the Spirit God has given you, he just lists tongues here. Obvious, he's writing to the Corinthian church. They had an obsession with this gift, and so he uses that. But no matter what the gift of the Spirit is that God has blessed you with, no matter what the talent is that God has blessed you with, what Paul is saying is you need to have that thing motivated from love. It can't just be there on its own. It can't just be something that you do. It has to come from that deep well of Christ-like love, a desire to see somebody else benefit merely because you want to see them be able to advance. So I ask you a question this evening. What is the talent that the Lord has given you? Do you think of yourself as a better person because you have that talent? 
Do you think of yourself as perhaps more spiritual than other people? Because maybe you have the ability to teach the Word of God. Now, I know the natural human response to this is, oh, no, not me. But, you know, we would do well, I think, to actually go into our prayer closet and ask the Lord to answer that question for us. And ask him, Lord, where does my service for you, where is it motivated from? We're pulling back all of the veneer and all the prettiness and all the bling and all that kind of stuff, just stripping it down to its bareness. Lord, where does my service from you, where is it motivated from? Is it motivated from my own ambitious goals? Is it motivated because I want my church to uh, be better than other churches? Is it motivated because I want others to think better of me than I have a spiritual life? Is my spiritual service to you motivated so that it covers up the wickedness in my heart so that other people don't think bad about me? Dear Lord, where is my service for you the exercise of the spiritual gift and the talent that you have given to me, where is it motivated from? That's what Paul's getting to. The manifestation of these gifts, the manifestation of these tongues, or, the, or these uh, gifts of the Spirit, must come from a motivation of love. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the gifts of the Spirit manifested without agape actually do more damage than good to the church of God. Because then the world says, there goes another hypocrite, saying one thing and doing something else. It does more harm than good. And so that's why I encourage you, have it out in your prayer closet with the Lord and say, Father, where is this stuff coming from? What is my service to you motivated by? Plenty of smart Talented people in our church have run people out of God's remnant church. Let that not be you and me. Amen? Paul goes on, and he makes this second contrasting statement here in verse 2. And he says this, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, what does he say I am? He says I'm nothing. He kind of couples together two things here. The gift of prophecy also with all knowledge and all understanding. When you look at the gift of prophecy, I am thankful that God has blessed us with that as a church. Amen. When we do Bible prophecy seminars, people want to know Bible prophecy. You know, without Bible prophecy, we really don't have any, uh, any indicator of where we are at in the stream of Earth's history. For all we know, without the books of Daniel and Revelation, we could be here for another 5,000 years. But when we read the books of Daniel and Revelation, it gives us a point of where we are at, the prophecies that have been fulfilled and what is yet to come. And we can see those signs being fulfilled around us. So prophecy gives us that hope. It gives us that confidence that indeed Christ is coming soon. But you can preach loveless prophecy. Prophecy does something else that I think is kind of fascinating. I just want to make this quick 
passing statement here. In the book of 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, just jot it down if you would. It's a passage you're familiar with. It says this, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto we do well to take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, listen to this, until the day dawn and the day star arise, in your hearts. It is apparent there that Peter is telling us that prophecy points us in the direction of the day star. We know from Revelation chapter 22 that that is none other than Jesus Christ, the bright and morning star. Prophecy is to point us in the direction of Jesus. Indeed, the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But Paul tells us that even if it were possible to have prophecy, to have the gift of prophecy, not only to have the gift of uh, making prophetic statements, but also to understand and break down the understanding of prophecy, if it is done without love, the absence of love, Paul says, it is nothing. Now, I used to think early on in my ministry, doing Bible prophecy seminars, that if I could just give a convincing enough argument, that if I could just have the right texts lined up, give the right reasoning, give the right history and all the right... I used to think that if I got all of that stuff right, people would just come right into the church. And that was the direction of my ministry for many years. The quest of finding the right things, the right passages, the right statements, the right quotes, whatever it may be. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what I found out about midway course through my time in public evangelism is I found that this thinking was not resulting in, uh, in results. Sure, people were gaining knowledge. They were getting better understanding of Daniel Revelation, but there weren't the results of people coming, becoming part of the church. And then as I began to study the Word of God, I realized that I was preaching a theology that was like my sponge before it was used washing dishes. Sure, it had the substance, but it was missing the life. And I want to tell you something this evening, friends. If you want to witness to the people that you have uh, contact to, if you want to witness to your coworkers or your classmates who have a secular background, the most effective way that you can do that is to plead for Jesus to give you a loving heart. It's not in lining up the right Bible passages, although that is important. It's not in having the best lines of reasoning and arguments, although that is important as well. But the most important thing is for Jesus to create in your heart love for that individual. Listen to this. This is from Nine Manuscript Releases, page 128. Servant of the Lord is going to back up the statement that I just made. She says this, a loving, lovable Christian. What kind of Christian? Loving and? Now listen, it's one thing to be loving. It's quite a different story to be lovable. And the servant of the Lord says, a loving, lovable. Listen to this. A loving, lovable Christian is the most powerful argument in favor of the truth. Have you ever read that before? A loving, lovable, I tell you, when I read this statement, it has never left my mind. A loving, 
lovable Christian is the most powerful argument in favor of the truth. She's simply telling me here this evening that she's taking the effectiveness of witnessing away from so much the pulpit and putting it in the hands of the laity. And she says, if you really want to do something big for God, if you really want to be effective at reaching other people, if you really want to build up the kingdom of God, if you really want to make a difference in the world, pray that Jesus gives you a loving, lovable character. If you really want to be effective in reaching those that God has brought into your life, have it out with the Lord in the prayer closet and say, Father, give me a loving, lovable character. Give me a loving, lovable heart because that is the most powerful argument in the favor of truth. You see, the world is looking for people that not only have a theoretical head knowledge, but the world is looking for people who have a head knowledge that has changed their hearts so thoroughly that is manifested in the character of Jesus in their lives. You see, I think one of the things that gets us a little nervous as Adventists when we talk about agape is because it's not really tangible. Right? You can do the Sabbath. Right? You can say, I take Sabbath off, I'm going to go to church, go to potluck, I'm going to hang out, do outreach. You, know, you can do that and be unconverted. You can say, well, I'm gonna, I, you know, I, I can do outreach, even though in my heart I can't wait to get home and watch the latest movie. Uh, you know, we, 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 can, we can do the health message, even though you know, we may be harboring some deep-seated sin in our lives. We can do those things. But when it comes to agape, you can't do agape. You can act it for a little while, but when people are around you long enough, they will notice that it's not genuine, but it's a counterfeit. And that will be a great turnoff to them. When it comes to agape, it has to be something that God creates in you. It comes from daily spending time with the Lord in prayer. It comes from daily asking the Lord to change your heart so that you become more like him and less like the world. It comes from looking at the character of Jesus. By beholding it, we become changed into that same image. It comes from taking the world out of our lives and replacing it with the, with the, with, with the observations of Jesus and the character of Christ. It comes from saturating our life with knowing Jesus and studying and reading his word and praying and spending time together with him. The more we do that, the more we immerse ourselves in the reading and the studying of God's word, looking at the character of Christ, the more we become like it and the more effective we become in reaching out to others. But you know what? This is what I found out. It's a whole lot easier to do a four-week evangelistic series than to let the Lord change your heart. Come on now. It's a whole lot easier to do 30 Bible studies with somebody and go through all of the Bible doctrines than to let the Lord root the, root, the, the weeds of sin out of your life. It's a whole lot easier to go knocking on doors and ask people if they want to do Bible studies than it is to say, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. It's a whole lot easier. And I believe that this is why agape is so missing in our churches today. It's like a desert when it comes to agape. 
tonight. The Lord is looking for people who say, Father, I am willing. I can't do this. In fact, tomorrow morning as we look at Paul's analysis of agape, you will find very quickly that this is not something that we humanly possess, nor can we ever possess in our own human strength. But it has to come from a conversion experience with Jesus. Paul really just boils it down in verse 2 and 3. In verse 2, he says, without agape, he says, I am nothing. And in verse 3, he says, without it, whatever I do profits me nothing. Just boils it all down here. I found an interesting statement from a Scottish evangelist by the name of Henry Drummond. He wrote a little, little book, I believe it was entitled The Greatest Thing in the World or something like that. Small read, well worth it. It's his commentary on the, book of, uh, on the chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. But he says this, in the heart of Africa, among the Great Lakes, I've come across black men and women who remember the only white man they ever saw, David Livingston. And as you cross his footsteps in that dark continent, men's faces light up as they speak of the kind doctor who passed there years ago. Listen to this. They could not understand him, but they felt the love that beat in his heart. They knew it was love, although he spoke no word. I want to ask you something this evening. If you all of a sudden became dumb, how would people know that you loved them? You see, friends, we are very good at verbalizing our love to God. We're very good at talking to other people about how we love God, about the things that we do and the things that we believe. Well, what happens if that was taken away from you? Would you still be able to show other people that it's not merely what you profess, but it's something that you are? David Livingston was able to communicate that, even though he could not communicate in their native tongue, those people knew that he loved them. They made a profound impact in their life. In one of my churches several years ago, we were holding a depression recovery seminar in our little tiny town, who was one of the, this little town was one of the top towns in the United States, top five, it was in the top five, I believe, for depression. There was a lady who had been invited to come to the seminar by one of our church members, had struggled with depression for over 20 years. Her depression was suicidal depression. And we usually don't advise those type of people to come to our seminars because that's just a different category in and of itself. We didn't know that. When the night came for her to come, she drove right past the church parking lot and kept going. She said, forget this, I'm going home. When she got to the end of the street and was getting ready to turn to go home, something told her, go back. 
She listened to that voice and she went back, sat in the back of the church. You've seen these type of people before. They have a little bubble. And you can't, you can't come inside that bubble. And she sat in the back. She, had, she was in her little bubble, very defensive. Didn't want to talk to anybody. She sat, listened, boom, and she was gone. But she signed up. She signed up. The next week came, she came again. We continued to go through this eight-week depression recovery seminar, giving her practical tips, lifestyle, uh, different things, how to overcome depression. 20 years, suicidal depression. Later on in the, in the seminar, right around probably week six or seven, right around in there, she started opening up. And she would talk to us. This was a huge thing. I don't know if you've ever dealt with somebody like this. It's just, it's phenomenally difficult to just communicate with them. She began to open up. She began to talk to us and tell, tell us just little bits of her story. Ask questions. Ask for some advice. And, you know, we just, we just continued to help her the best that we could. When we finished the eight-week course... She came to me and the elder, the two of us that were, we were running the Depression Recovery Seminar, and she said, listen, I'd like to meet with you guys sometime. Can, can we get together and talk? <laughs> you could have blown me over with a feather. I mean, the, you, you want to talk to, yeah, you want to, you want to talk to, yeah, sure, okay, sure. We can get together. Let's do this. So we set up a time for us to meet and talk together. She came in to our church, we sat in one of the side Sabbath school rooms, and we began to talk to her, and she began to share with us more of her story. But then she said this, I have decided that I would like to become a Seventh-day Adventist. Now, in the course of our conversation, we found out that this precious lady was not raised in a religious environment. She was not raised going to church Sunday or Sabbath. God was really kind of out of the equation in her mind. Uh, and given her severe depression that she was going through, God was even more distant. And as I sat there, I, I, I think, you know, it's kind of like you know, when you hear, the, you hear something so life transformative, it kind of echoes in your ears. And as I was sitting there, I was thinking, hang on a second. We did not talk about the Sabbath. We didn't talk about the 2300 days. We didn't talk about the state of the dead. We didn't talk about the second coming of Christ. We didn't go through any Bible prophecy. Basically, all we did was tell them, read the book of Proverbs. That was about the extent of our spiritual advice. Of course, we gave them other things, but, but read the book of Proverbs. Good cognitive thinking. It helps you to develop a better, healthier way of thinking. So they would read a Proverbs every day through the time of our... But now she's sitting there and she's saying, I want to become a Seventh-day Adventist. Now, as I got home later on, I was just mulling this over my head. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? I can preach a four-week evangelistic prophecy seminar. I can take people through 32 Bible studies, and at the end of that, they don't want to be an Adventist. You've all done this before, I'm sure. But here's a lady who hasn't heard anything about what we believe, and now she's saying, I want to be a Seventh-day Adventist. I said, okay, well, let's get together. Let's set up a time. We should start studying the Bible together. Started going through some Bible studies. 
Doctrine after doctrine after doctrine. Sure, I believe that. Sure, yep, I can see that from the Bible. Sure thing. Oh, you want me? I should live a more healthier life? Okay, I'll get rid of the, the, the pork and all. Go to church on Sabbath? I'm there. When people die, they're resting? Sure, that makes sense from the Word of God. Doctrine after doctrine after doctrine. She just accepted it one thing after another. Now, I'm not telling you that, that, that she didn't have her struggles. 20 years of depression doesn't go away in eight weeks. But she went from severely depressed to depressed. <laughs> now, that might not seem like much to you. But that somebody who's been de severely depressed, suicidal depression for 20 years, that's a significant move in eight weeks. We studied with this beautiful lady. We helped her with her problems. We, we, we helped her financially. We helped her physically. We helped her emotionally. We helped her intellectually. We poured into her for almost two years. Before I left that district, the beautiful privilege of baptizing her in Lake Huron as a Seventh-day Adventist of our church. You know, I think we want microwave evangelism in our church. Don't get me wrong, I believe there's a time and a place for it. I believe there's a time and a place for it, and I still do it. It's what we're counseled in the spirit of prophecy. I think it's good. But I think we're missing something. We're missing something that is so fundamental to us as Christians that it's like the elephant, the proverbial elephant in the room. It is the, it is the defining characteristic of who we are. We tend to define ourselves as, as Adventists by what we believe. But the Bible defines us as Christians by what we are, by what we do, by how we love one another. Not putting up with each other, but truly love one another. And I believe, I have a firm conviction, that if God's people would take the truth and saturate it with love, we would see Acts chapter 2 explosion in our church. There is no doubt about it in my mind. The world is starving for this type of love. It's not a cheap love. It's not a love that you can get down at the corner market. It's not a love that you find floating around in school or in some sort of relationship, but it is a genuine, deep love that only can come from Jesus. This world is starving for it. I had to ask myself a question. If this is so fundamental to who we are as Christians... If it's fundamental to the success of our evangelism, to the, to the attractiveness of our theology, if this is so fundamental to who I am as a disciple of Christ, why do I not see it? Why is it absent in my life, and why is it absent in the larger sphere of our church? 
Well, there's only one Bible passage that answered that. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 12. The Bible says this. Matthew chapter 24, verse 12. Why is agape so foreign? You're familiar with it. You could probably quote it off the top of your head. The Bible says, And because iniquity shall abound, the agape of many shall wax cold. Why is it that we don't see it as much as we should? Because the iniquity in our life has its hands around the throat of agape that God is trying to create inside of us. Choking it, squeezing it tighter and tighter. And the longer we let those, that iniquity exist in our hearts, the tighter the grip it gets around the throat of agape until it squeezes it out. It says that the agape has grown cold. And those of you in the medical field know, you don't even have to be in the medical field to know this, that when somebody dies... They get cold. Agape is cold because iniquity is killing it. It's choking it to death. So the reason why we don't see it the way we ought, whether it be in our own life or in our church, is simply for one reason. And one reason alone, and that is because we allow sin to exist where it should not be. We need to have it out in our prayer closet with the Lord, don't we? We need to beg and plead at the feet of Jesus. We need to have a garden of Gethsemane prayer time with the Lord and realize the weight of the responsibility that rests upon us to show the world that we are disciples not merely in what we say, but in what we do. That's what the world is looking for. Listen to this. This is from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 29, and I conclude with this. When one presents the love of Christ and the beauty of holiness, he is drawing away the subjects of Satan's kingdom. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What does agape do? It draws away people from the kingdom of darkness. It's like a magnet. People can't resist it. When the agape of God exists inside of us, it draws people. It pulls them out of the kingdom of darkness. They begin to see the cheap love that the devil wants them to find value in. And they all of a sudden see a love that is deep, that has roots, that has substance, that has meaning to it, and it is attractive. They cannot resist it. They are pulled away from the kingdom of darkness when you simply allow God to create agape in your hearts. Nothing coming out of your mouth. Just simply who you are becomes attractive to Satan's people. So the question I want to ask you tonight is, what do you do when, or what do people see when you are put in difficult situations? What do people see when you are mistreated when something does not go your way? What do people see when you are spoken to in a disrespectful manner or maybe even, even publicly embarrassed? How do you react in those types of situations? How we react in those kind of situations 
I believe will be all the difference between our non-Adventist Christians saying, that person has something that I want, and them saying, forget it, I'm happy where I'm at. This is big stuff. And I believe that this is what Jesus is waiting for. He's not waiting for Bible prophecy. We know that. He's waiting for the character of Jesus in the hearts of his people. And when that happens, this church is going to explode. I want to be part of that. I crave that experience. This is not a cheap love gospel, okay? There's plenty of that you can get at all the different evangelical churches. But this is a love with the motivation of winning people to Jesus and the truth of his word. That's the goal. We're going to massage this out a little bit more in our next two presentations together. But tonight I want to appeal to you. Tomorrow morning, or maybe even tonight when you get home, however the Lord is resting it upon your heart, that you would have a little time together with the Lord and ask him, Father, please give me that experience. I want people to know that I am a disciple of Jesus, not because of what comes out of my mouth, but because of who I am. I want the world to know that I am a disciple of Jesus because his agape is my agape as well. Would you do that? Have it out with the Lord in your prayer time? Father, give me this. I crave it. I want this with all of my being. Let's pray together tonight. Father in heaven, Lord, this is big stuff. I know that the Spirit of God wants to answer this prayer more than anything. Father, we have accepted the truth. We have accepted Jesus as our Savior. We have accepted the doctrines of your word. But Father, there's a little more sanctification in each one of our hearts that needs to take place. And I pray, dear Father, tonight that as we go home and have that time in our prayer closet together with you, that you would show us whatever it is that may be hampering the creation of agape in our lives, the totality of its creation. And Lord, if it already is there, encourage us to keep going in the direction that you are taking us. But Father, we want people to see that we are Christians, that we are Seventh-day Adventists, that we are Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventists, not merely in the words that we speak, but in the way that we live our lives and the way we love those around us. Father, may we get to the point where this is the only thing that we can do, that we cannot respond in any other way than in love, as Jesus would if he were being treated the same way. Bless us to this end, Lord, we ask. Give us this gift, for it cannot come from within. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.